0: Number of years ago some scientists from Stanford University went to a local preschool uh, and they asked students to do something that four and five-year-olds hate doing which is clean up a classroom. Uh, and so for some of the students they took the traditional approach saying hey would you would you help clean up But for a second set of students, they tried a different approach. Rather than asking them, would you help? They asked them, would you be a helper and clean up? Now, the difference between help and helper is quite small. It's only adding two letters, E-R, to the end of the word help. Yet that led to an over 30% increase in kids' willingness to help clean up.
1: Hey guys, welcome to the Brain and Brand Show. I'm your host, Timothy Maurice. Thanks so much for choosing this exciting episode with New York Times bestselling author Jonah Berger. Jonah is one of my favorite authors, and in his latest book, Magic Words, he shares his research on how six types of words can increase your impact across all areas of your life, from motivating a team, a child, boosting creativity, building a stronger brand, or even helping you fall in love. So whether you're a leader in search of love, a teacher, a doctor, a lawyer, or just a person interested in why people do what they do and how to get more out of people, this episode is for you. Jonah is a professor at the Wharton Business School and a sheer delight to chat to. Please join our leading listeners and leave a comment and rate the show wherever you're listening on whichever platform. Now, meet Jonah Berger. Enjoy. An international best-selling author of Magic Words, Contagious, Invisible Influence, and The Catalyst. And today we're going to focus on Magic Words. Jonah, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. So I have to say that You know, after following your work for many, many years, this is a wonderful highlight for me. And for those who follow the show, they will have put two and two together somewhere in the middle of this conversation. And I'm looking forward to that moment happening. Before we dive into your wonderful book, Magic Words, I have to go inside of your mind. Do you mind if we ask you seven fun, light questions uh, so that the audience can get to know you? Go for it. Here we go. Number one at a black tie event, necktie or bow tie?
0: <laughs> you know, this is a tough I've been thinking a lot about bow ties lately, and I, I want to be a bow tie guy. I feel like deep down I'm a bow tie guy, but I, but I haven't actually gotten there yet. So I'd probably do a bow tie um, rather, rather than a, a traditional necktie, but one day, hopefully, I will be a bow tie person.
1: <laughs> you're on your way. Okay, cool. Yes. If you're writing a new book, would you prefer riding in a cafe overlooking a beach or in a mountain villa?
0: <laughs> wherever it's quiet. I'll go wherever it's quiet.
1: <laughs> okay. Yeah. A cafe is probably not going to be too quiet. Yeah. No, I, uh, I, I, it's hard for me to work with noise. Okay. Purple or red? Purple. Lecturing or consulting? Oh, I think I'm supposed
0: to say lecturing in case somebody hears <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm go with lecturing.
1: <laughs> okay. Salmon or broccoli?
0: Oh, uh, broccoli.
1: And if you have to give a, as a gift a book for a marketing undergraduate, they're graduating and you have to give a gift, but you've got two options, Contagious, or invisible influence.
0: <laughs> this is like, if you've got two kids and someone's like, which one do you love? More? Yeah. <laughs> that question. Um, you know, I will go, uh, I will go with contagious. I think both are great, but I'll go with contagious.
1: Awesome. It's so funny. Well, prior to this interview, I had a cousin who found out I was going to be interviewing you based on some post I had, and that's her favorite book as well. Oh, okay. And finally, finally words. Or phrases uh i'll go with words (laughs) (laughs) what a perfect segue thank you for allowing us to go inside your mind jonah i want to kick off this interview by asking when when and why did you decide to research and write about the power of words
0: you know, it, it's been interesting. So uh, I've studied influence for a long time. I've been influ- interested in influence. You know, um, Influence is even in the, in the title of at least one of my books. So it's it's clearly uh, something I've been interested in. But um, as I continue to do research, I, I realize that um, words are the conduit through which influence happens uh, often, right? Uh, even if we're trying to influence someone else, it's hard to do that without using the, the right words. And um, uh, about 15 years or so now, uh, ago now, we started on a project analyzing what made online content viral. So doing a big analysis of the New York Times most emailed list to figure out why people share some content more than others. We had a problem, which is that we wanted to analyze the content of the articles. We're saying, hey, why do some articles go viral? We have to see, well, what dimensions do articles vary on? Do some article have more emotion or less emotion? Um, Evoke more anger or less anger, more sadness and and so on. And and so we started doing this manually, having people read some of these articles uh, and coding them on these different dimensions. Um, And not only did that take forever, but it was pretty subjective. And so we started wondering, well, might there be a more automated way uh, to to measure this? And so this is my first introduction uh, to what we now might describe as natural language processing or automated textual analysis. Started using a software package that counted the presence of certain words and used them to estimate uh, the presence of different different emotions. And, and I started to realize, wow, you know, if we want to understand why people share things, we want to understand why things catch on, we want to understand why some things succeed and others fail, language is a really important area to look at. And we may be able to use some of this new technology, these natural or automated uh, language processing tools, to extract insight from from language data, right? I don't have to tell you this, but we use language all the time. You and I are talking via language, we email using language, sales pitches, phone calls, PowerPoint decks, all involve language. But while we spend a lot of time thinking about the ideas we want to communicate, the big things we want to get across, we spend a lot less time thinking about the individual words we use. And unfortunately, that's a mistake because as I talk about in the book, subtle shifts in language, you know, one word here versus another word there, changing the phrases or or things we use can have a big uh, effect on our impact. And so the, the book is all about, you know, what are these magic words and, and how by understanding that can we take advantage of their power?
1: Yeah. I mean, one of the things I'm most blown away by, and I think I left this book thinking about it, are... The words that I speak to myself in my head and, and how much they influence us, we're not going to go there just yet. I, before we actually start speaking about good words, good phrases and activating identity and so forth, what are a couple really destructive words? There has to be, after reading this book, some words we should just really avoid. You know, it, it's interesting.
0: Um, if you look online, there there will be you know Fortune articles or pieces in different places where people say never use this word or you know don't don't do this or, or don't do that. And um, I, most of those are opinion. And, and I do love people's opinion. Um, uh, but what's better than someone's opinion, I- including my own, is is data. Um, and and what's neat about the past decade, decade and a half is there've been two big shifts that have changed the way we study language. Right. One is just the availability of data. Now there's so much more language data out there, right? We're doing this interview at the end. You may press a button and you may get a transcript from Zoom of everything that we said, right? Billions of people every day share their opinions online. We can get transcripts of news articles and customer service calls and and sales pitches. And so we can mine all this data for, for insight. And the second thing is these new tools, right? These new natural language automated um, uh, tools, whether they involve machine learning or simple dictionaries, whether they're, you know, topics or themes or embeddings or other approaches, can allow us to extract insight from from language. And so just like uh, you know, the telescope revolutionized astronomy or the microscope changed the way we think about biology or chemistry, these new language tools are changing the way we, we think about language. And so what's so neat is you know we've analyzed thousands of customer service calls to look at the words that increase customer satisfaction, right? What are ways of talking, words as well as paralanguage, that make those customers more satisfied during those calls. We've looked at tens of thousands of pieces of online content to look at what holds attention, right? Not just gets people to open an article, but actually read the whole thing. How can we write or speak in ways that are more likely to captivate that audience? We've looked at movie scripts and and song lyrics. We've looked at sales pitches and a variety of different domains. And so at the end, what we can say is, look, it's not just my opinion, right? By using this type of language in these contexts, it can have a a desirable outcome, increase, you know, your uh, likelihood of persuading someone by 15 to 20%. It can increase your creativity by about a third. And so what's nice is we can really speak to the quantifiable relationships that exist rather than just people's
1: opinions. I love that. And I, I think that's what makes, you know, what's so inspiring about your work. And I, one of the things I was fascinated by is when it comes to activating identity, using words like Help. So helper versus help. Why don't you explain that a bit? Sure.
0: Yeah. So um, let's start in a place that uh, uh, all of us are interested in, which is is, uh, encouraging others to do something, right? Whether we're a boss, whether we're an employee, whether we're a salesperson, whether we're talking to our spouse or our kids, all of us often want to influence someone else but it's often hard to do that can we can we use language to help and so a number of years ago some scientists from stanford university went to a local preschool uh, and they asked students to do something that four and five year olds hate doing which is clean up a classroom uh, and so for some of the students they took the traditional approach saying hey would you would you help clean up there were crayons on the floor and uh, you know overturned seats and uh, you know boxes and different things that need to be cleaned up and they said hey would you would you help clean up but for a second set of students, they tried a different approach. Rather than asking them, would you help? They asked them, would you be a helper clean up?" Now, the difference between help and helper is quite small. It's only adding two letters, ER, to the end of the word help. Yet that led to an over 30% increase in kids' willingness to help clean up. And you might say, well, that's interesting, but that's kids in a classroom. What about adults and more consequential behaviors? And so more recently, some scientists looked at voting. Again, voting is something we all know we should do, but we don't necessarily do it. And they looked at whether language could get people to be more likely to vote. They sent uh, emails to people. For some people, it said, hey, would you please go vote? Um, but for other people, they said, hey, would you please go be a voter? Now, again, the difference between vote and voter is is quite small there. It's only one letter, R, at the end of the word vote, yet it led to about a 15% increase in people's turning out at the polling uh, place, even uh, given though it's a a consequential action that takes a bit of, of work. And so one question is why? right? Why was helper more effective than help or voter more effective than vote? And it all comes down to the difference between actions and, and identities, right? Um, there are many actions we know we should take. We know we should eat healthier and exercise once in a while and help people out and vote and read and do all these things we know we should do. But we're busy. We don't always have the time to do all these things. What we care about more, though, than specific actions are desired identities. We all want to see ourselves in positive ways, smart and competent and knowledgeable and, and uh, healthy and all these different things. And so if actions become an opportunity to claim desired identities, well, now we're much more likely to take those those actions, right? If helping is an opportunity to show ourselves and others that we're a helper, well, now we're more likely to help. Voting, we mean to, but we're busy. But hold on, if voting, going to that polling place becomes an opportunity to claim that desired identity, to be a voter, we're much more likely to do it. And so by turning actions into identities, by taking words like vote uh, and help and turning them into, into nouns, a helper, a voter, and, and so on, we can make people more likely to take those actions. And and it even happens in the reverse way with negative, uh, negative words, right? Think about uh, losing, for example. Losing is bad, but being a loser would, would be even worse. Cheating is bad, but being branded a cheater would be even even worse. And so Research shows, hey, when cheating would make me a cheater, when uh, cheating on a test, for example, would, would lead me to be think of myself as a cheater, I'm less likely to do it. I'm going to avoid those actions to avoid claiming those negative identities. There's even an old campaign in the United States against littering. Rather than saying to people, don't litter, they say, don't be a litter bug. Now, again, mm. it's just a, a simple <laughs> word shift there, but by sure. framing that action as more of an identity makes
1: people less likely to do it. For me, this is one of the more powerful sections of the book, and I know you start out the book this way, but, you know, having studied in-group and out-group dynamics, using the word, you know, helping somebody identify or have an identity, they feel safer. What is some of the neurobiology? Can you speak to that quickly about what it feels like when you feel like you're part of something positive? Yeah, I mean, look, we, we all care about fitting in.
0: We all want to be part of desirable groups, right? We all want to see ourselves as a certain way. And part of that are the groups we belong to. Similarly, right? Outgroup stuff. We also want to distinguish ourselves from from other groups. Think about kids as they grow up. One of the first ways they form their own identities is by separating themselves from their parents, not just an extension of my parent, I am my own person.
1: Yes, yes, yes. So
0: there's this fundamental tension between similarity and difference, fitting in and, and standing out. And so using the language of identity can be a great way to motivate people, whether uh, to take a certain action or, or even from a, a more of a marketing perspective, right? Companies use this all the time. Uh, there's a clothing company in the United States called L.L. Bean, uh, and they have a campaign called Be an Outsider. And it's B and because B and N spell the word Bean, which is part of the company's name. But it's also like, hey, you know, wear this stuff, and you're not just wearing some clothes; you're buying a ticket to an identity, right? You're being part uh, of this group, and so I think yeah. identity can be leveraged in really positive ways. We have to be careful when they're leveraged in negative and divisive
1: ways, but can be really powerful ways to motivate behavior. Let's talk about emotion. Obviously, having a podcast. Being able to use the emotion to kind of boost my podcast, I found that very attractive. But just explain how we can, you know, use language to boost emotion.
0: Yeah. So, you know, I have been fascinated in the past 10 years or so about what makes a good story. And, and, and part of why is we all know when we read a good story or we hear a good story or we uh, watch a good story. We are glued. We can't help but pay uh, attention. Um, and, and the, the human in me enjoys those experiences, right? I keep flipping the pages of the book or listening to whatever I'm listening to. The scientist in me goes, wait a second. Why is this working? Right there's something underneath here. There's some math, some logic, some structure to it. What is that structure? And so we've done a bunch of projects in the last five to seven, even ten years or so, trying to study these questions, looking at what makes certain movies more uh, engaging, what makes uh, certain books um, uh, more successful, looking at sort of the dynamics of language that these things use to to engage folks. And one thing we found is is interesting. So I think many of us think. That when we talk about ourselves or express things, um, uh, we should use positive emotion, right? If we're going to use emotion at all, it should be positive. When I talk about myself, let me only talk about the positive things, right? So you look on social media and everyone is the most amazing person in the entire world. They have so many awards and they win so many things. And it's it's a veritable highlight reel of the greatest hits of their lives, And we think that's the best way to present ourselves. Why? Because we think it'll make people think about us more favorably. Here's the problem, though. Two things, right? One, most people look at that and they go, well, that's not me, right? I can't relate to that because my life isn't like that. And second, it makes for a really boring story. Because if everything someone says is positive and amazing, right? Imagine you went to the movies and this movie started out with the character winning an award and then they got promoted and then they found the love of their life and everything was wonderful, you wouldn't want to pay attention to that story. What makes a great story in part is the variation, right? The ups and downs. If you, if you track movies from Star Wars to Harry Potter to pick, pick your favorite movie and you look at the emotional language that they use throughout the movie, it's often like a roller coaster, right? It starts somewhere in the middle. It goes up. Things are looking great. And then something bad happens, right? And then at depths of despair, you know, someone dies, somebody gets, loses the love of their life. There's a bad thing that happens. And then things get better, right? They're training and they're meeting some friends and it looks like they're going to succeed and then they fail, right? And then it moves up again. And, and by going up and down, it does two things. First, it makes the content more engaging because you don't know what's going to happen next. But second, it's a lot more relatable because we can see ourselves in those stories, right? For most of us, like life isn't just highlights. We fail all the time. Sure. Like, all of us fail all the time. And so seeing other people fail, we go out. Well, I can empathize with them. I can see myself in their shoes, And if they can overcome their failures, well, now I can overcome mine as well. And so using this more roller coaster way of telling stories not only makes our content more engaging, but it helps people relate to
1: us and it makes them like us more as well. You know, there's a movie that came out recently, and I don't want to date this podcast because one of the things I love about podcasts, somebody can listen to this 10 years from now and it will be as relevant. But there's a recent movie that came out where the villain is AI, and I struggle to connect Because what emotion is there associated with this AI? (laughs) And it was interesting for me. I left this extraordinary movie with this insane budget thinking, I don't know how to relate to this AI. Yeah. So it's so, so powerful. And it's going to be interesting to see when the reviews come in. If you look at the way that villains
0: have changed in movies over the past, I won't say decade, but at least a number of years, villains are a lot more nuanced than they used to be. Right? Like, you know, take 30, 40, 50 years ago, the villain was just a bad person and they were just bad and mean and they wanted to conquer the world or hurt somebody. But if you look at villains now, they're a lot more nuanced, right? They're a lot more like this, this roller coaster where, yeah, they're, they're real people, right? They are, they were wronged in some way themselves. And that's led them to commit wrongs on others. And it's really interesting to see that as a viewer because you sit there going, well, who am I rooting for? Right? I clearly am rooting for. I feel like I feel like I can empathize with the villain, and so it yeah. makes movies richer and deeper in an, in an interesting way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Let's shift to similarity, sameness, difference, division, and the role that words can play in it.
0: Yeah, so I'll pick on one piece of research in in, in this section that I that I love, um, and that is some research that was done on the language of email. Right. And so, um, think about within an organization, you know, some people get promoted. Some people get fired. Some people leave for another job somewhere else. Um, could we understand why that happens? And in particular, could we understand why it happens by the language of their email? And I don't just mean whether they're sort of, you know, kissing up in their email or whether they're, you know, using curse words to the boss or saying something offensive. It's actually something much more subtle. How similar their are languages to other people within the organization. And so some researchers do this nice analysis where they say, look, companies, just like social groups, have norms. They have ways they use language. And you can measure when someone joins a company how similar their language is to the language used by the other people in the company right? By looking at the language of their emails, you can say, okay, this person uses language in a very similar way to their peers at the company. And this person uses language uh, very different from, from their peers. And you might say, well, oh man, you know, some people use language in a similar way. Some people use language in a different way. Are we just doomed, right? We're either similar or different, but it's more nuanced than that because most people, when they join a company, their language becomes more similar to other people in the company, right? They enculturate, they adopt the norms and the practices and the ways of communicating within that firm. But you see some interesting things. First, the people that are better able to enculturate, better able to adopt the norms of the firm are more likely to be promoted. And the people that aren't as good at adopting the norms of the firm are more likely to end up being fired. But you see something interesting in addition, right? After some people are able to sort of inculturate and be part of the firm, some people stick with it and some people diverge again. They, They move in a different direction. Those people end up quitting and taking a better job somewhere else. Their language leaks information about what they're going to do in the future. The fact that they're less likely to mimic their colleagues and the type of language they use is an indication that they're going to leave for something better elsewhere. Because it's interesting, language not only influences other people, right? Using help versus helper changes other people's behavior, but language provides information, reflects things about us. It can tell people whether we're going to get promoted or fired or leave for a different firm. We leak information about whether we're lying or not through the language we use, even something like a loan application. You can predict whether someone's going to default on that loan or not based on the language they use in their application, not because they tell you, right? Everyone, when they apply for a loan, will say, I'll pay this back. I promise. Thank you so much. But by using those words, the differences in the words they use, we can get insight into how likely they're going to engage in certain actions in the future.
1: I want to shift to how asking better questions can help us connect to people, maybe even explore love. Yeah, you know, I have found questions to be a
0: fascinating topic. Um, there was, um, a section in my last book, uh, The Catalyst on reactants and how to persuade others, not by making statements, but by asking questions to encourage and involve them in the process. So they push back more and they're more participating. Questions do some amazing things, right? They not only allow us to collect information, they shape how we're perceived. And as you said, how able we are to connect with, with others. There's some nice research, for example, on, on asking for advice. Right, Often when we're, we're stuck on a tough problem, we don't know how to solve it. We often know someone that we think can be helpful. They have more experience, more knowledge. And so we want to ask them for their advice. But we tend not to. Why? Well, we're worried they're busy or they won't know the answer. Even worse, they'll think less of us for asking for advice, right? Because mm-hmm. we ask for advice, they'll think we don't know anything. And so they won't want want to work with us in the future. But some, some researchers actually looked into this. They had people have a variety of social interactions uh, and they had some people ask for advice and others not. And what they found was something interesting. Asking for advice didn't make people seem less competent or less knowledgeable. In fact, just the opposite. It made people seem more competent. And more knowledgeable, and you might say, "Well, why? Why would asking for advice make you seem more competent or more knowledgeable?" In a couple of things. First, yes, it does make you seem curious. Most people like other people that are curious and, and want to know more. But it also has to do with egocentrism, right? If if I asked your listeners, for example, I said, "Hey, which of you think you give bad advice?" I don't think anyone would go, "Oh, me, I I give bad advice," right? We all think that we give amazing advice, and so when <laughs> someone else asks us for our advice, we go, "Wow, that person's really smart." Because of all the people, they could have asked for advice. They asked me, right? And so by, by asking people for advice, in some sense, we're flattering them. We're saying, hey, I think you know more about this domain. And so I'm asking for your opinion, which makes people feel really good. But it doesn't just make them feel good. It makes them like you more as a result as well.
1: You know what I, One of the reasons why I love this work is whether you are applying this with a child or to some of our most pressing challenges, such as immigration or inclusion or gender equality. It's extremely powerful. I've used some of this work with kids that come from orphan backgrounds who rise through the ranks because of certain policies that are trying to advance people from these backgrounds. And often one of the biggest challenges is language. So they come from backgrounds where they can't relate to people. They... they. They haven't had similar experiences. They haven't traveled to certain places. But a lot giving them the tools to help shift and tweak their language, everything can magically change. And, and that's why I love this work. And I love the framework, your speak framework, where you speak about similarity for S, pose question for P, emotion, agency, confidence, and, and um, um, greatness. Concreteness, yes. (laughs) And, you know, you people can download this off of your website while they're waiting to get your book. Jonah, thank you so much for your work. And I want to close by saying what, what ultimately does language reveal about us? You know, I think it it says a lot
0: about who we are, right? Just as you very nicely said, you know, language is something we pick up from the people around us. We pick it up from the experiences we we have. Um, you know, uh, we have two two young children, and and every night our oldest uh reads me a book and, and I read a couple books to them. And I, I think a lot about what they learn from from these books, right? They not only learn ideas, they learn language and in particular words. And sometimes our, our son uses that against me. He says, you know, this rarely happens, dad, or whatever. He's almost <laughs> six years old. (laughs) So he he now has learned that language is a tool for influence. But I think by understanding the power of magic words, we can all increase our our
1: own impact and have happier and healthier lives. Jonah Berger, thank you so much for joining us on the Brain and Thanks for having me.